Good morning to everyone. Before we uh, before we go into message, I just want to share a little bit that as uh, I appreciate the trust and the privilege of being able to open God's word, but I also want you to know that I greatly appreciate you as a body, as a brothers and sisters in the Lord. And uh, as we were coming to the time uh, of visiting, uh, I was weighing some things before the Lord, asking what what would He have for for you? What would He have to encourage you in the things of God? And uh, to be very honest, even up until last night, I was still wrestling as to what exactly the Lord would have. And uh, my wife asked as uh, the children were tucked in and I was, uh, we, were, we stayed local so we could get here a little bit earlier. Or should I say not have to leave quite so early to get here, especially with time change, just to be honest with you. And she said, uh, do you know what you're preaching on? I said, I think I do. I do trust God's leading. Um, a month ago, I had the privilege of preaching at Harmony, and I shared a message that has been on my heart, and I have preached in different forms throughout the years, and I believe uh, that this is what God has for us here today. So I'm going to invite you to stand again, and let's pray and ask for God's blessing and anointing on you and on, on the Word of God, that we, may, that we may follow Him with all our hearts. Let's pray. Precious Heavenly Father, again, we just thank you that we can be gathered in the name of Jesus Christ. Oh God, we, we have many needs, and Lord, we know that we stumble in many ways, but God, your grace has brought us far into the promised land. And Lord, although there are still areas yet to conquer, you have promised that you will walk with us, that we may have the victory through you at each and every turn. Father God, we submit ourselves unto you again this morning. Thank you for the devotion and the children's lesson, and the beautiful songs to give you glory. Father, will you pour a fresh anointing now as I spend this time opening my heart. Lord, would you open all of our hearts and let the Word of God sink deep within us. Lord, we are yours. We ask that all pride and all form and all mode all be laid to rest, that we may just Be your disciples, Lord. Thank you so much for your goodness and your grace. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You may be seated. One of the things that has caught my attention as I've been doing uh, doing my my devotion time is in 2 Samuel chapters 14, 15, and 16, that whole area there where where David and uh, the circumstance with... uh, with Absalom and that whole that whole story, I think all of us know that so well. The thing that really stands out to me about that portion of Scripture, first off, is that God God doesn't uh, remove the warts and the uglies of of different people in the Bible, and I'm so thankful for that because that gives me hope. You know, there are times where where I fall short, and I and I think that if you're like me, you fall short as well. And uh, so we see in the example of the Word of God many men. And, and women as well, who love the Lord, who had their heart bent to serve Him, and yet <clears throat> they have some very clear gaps at certain periods of their life. But that's not all that God focuses on, but yet there are a lot of lessons there for us. And in this, in this whole story of, of David and Absalom, you know, I, I forget which chapter exactly it is, but uh, Absalom's half-brother violated Tamar. And you know, David was a man after God's own heart, but David was not a man after the heart of his children very well. In fact, 
He could go and he could conquer nations. He could defeat the enemy. He could pour out his heart before the Lord. But when it came to dealing with issues within his household, he struggled. He struggled. It's almost as if he, he froze with fear or inability to know which way to turn, left or to right, or, or how to deal with things. And so when the situation happened with Tamar, you know, the Bible tells us that David got mad, but he didn't do anything about the situation. Now, we know what happened with Absalom. Ultimately, of course, God brought judgment on him and he was brought to naught. But, you know, when you look at Absalom's life, or at least this is the piece that amazes me. You know, it's, it, it's so easy to want to just demonize Absalom for what he did. And he did wrong and God judged him accordingly. Don't get me wrong. But, you know, there was some, some powerful uh, characteristics within Absalom. You know, he loved his sister. In fact, the scriptures tell us that he had, he had several boys, and then he had a daughter. And do you remember what he named her? He named her Tamar. Her dignity, according to the culture, had been totally stripped from her by somebody else's wickedness. But Absalom loved his sister enough. I can just imagine, you know, David should have brought her into his home, but instead, Absalom takes Tamar into his. Now, I don't know what the conversation was there, but I imagine that Absalom was like, Tamar, I want you to know how much I respect you. Oh, no, no one can respect me. The shame that's upon me. No, but I respect you. No one will ever have me. I can never show my face. No, you will. Not only will you show your face, you will be with me, and you'll be with my family. And I will walk with you, and I will honor you. For what has happened to you is not your own. It was someone else's evil. Oh, Absalom. And then, I just imagine when they had their first girl, I imagine it was their first girl, at least it looks that way from the Scripture. And he goes to her and he says, he says, I want you to know that I named my girl after you. You may not be able to stand tall within our culture, but by the grace of the Almighty, she will. And she'll carry your name. That's how proud I am of you. I don't know how all that laid out, but there had to have been something in Absalom's heart for his sister. And then we see that he had many gifts. And the interesting thing is, is that where David lacked, David lacked in the area of making judgment, of of passing judgment well. And uh, it seems whether by reaction or by, by talents, like we heard this morning, Absalom had the gift of, of judging. He had the gift of, of being able to discern and to give direction. God's intention, I am sure, was for Absalom's gift to come alongside his father's lack and build the kingdom of God. But instead of Absalom and David both seeing the wisdom of coming together in their strengths and weaknesses, Absalom took his gift and he used it to expose his father's lack. There was a breakdown in the whole journey there. And, you know, and then we see Absalom expressing his gift at the gate. You remember the story. So he's at the gate and people would come to see the king for judgment. That's, that was the issue. That was David's difficulty to pass judgment and to bring about justice in an interpersonal way. And so he would stand at the gate and people would come and, and we hear that he would call them over and hear their situation. And he would share then uh, his thoughts with them or however it was. And then as time went on, he continued to be at the gate and people began to come 
to him for advice. And if you remember, he would call and say, what nation are you from? And then they would say, and then he would greet them with a kiss. And it says, by this did Absalom steal the hearts of the men of Israel. He was strong in the area of connecting to the hearts of the people of God. But again, instead of him coming alongside of his father to compliment his lack so that David's strength could excel still more, he used it to steal from his dad, ultimately to steal from God. Absalom was bitter. You know, I think what he expressed to the people of Israel was what he wanted his dad to express to him. What he did in the judgment upon his half-brother was what he wanted to see his father do. But bitterness came in. And I'm so amazed at this whole story because I just, I know Absalom was wrong and I know he was responsible for his action and he was judged accordingly, no doubt. But you know, there was good within him that wasn't somehow cultivated or submitted to God in the way it should have been in order for him to be what God wanted him to be. When we get to those places in life where we have those choices to make, you know, with the gifts that we have, if we go left or we go right, can make all the difference. God has called us to cover one another's faults. And if it is through our strength, then amen. Never do we cover one another's sins. We know that. But our faults and our weaknesses and our shortcomings, God has built a body in order for other gifts to come alongside to complement, not to tear down. May God give us wisdom. So this morning I'd like us to talk about, or I'd like to share with you, the burden that again is brought to me through those types of stories, and that is in the heart of a father, a heart of a mother, but certainly this morning I'm looking at a father, heart of a father, for his children and that journey. Did I see a cup of water up here? Did anyone drink from this cup of water? Oh, there it is. Huh? Well, I'll trust the Lord, right? Thank you. <clears throat> There's an amazing passage in Hosea chapter 10, verse 12, and it reads this way. It says, Break up the fallow ground, for it is time to seek the Lord. That whole piece of fallow ground, I'm not an agriculture person at all, and there's different ideas of what that means and what it could be. It could be that a man goes and plows a field and he gets it broken up. He gets it ready to receive seed and maybe sickness comes or, or there's a, uh, a swift change in weather, things that you wouldn't expect. And the, and the field just lays there because they can't go in and finish out whatever the process is for laying seed. And then when they come back to that field, they find that it is, it is hard. It is crusted over where it has been pushed up. And uh, or plowed up and ready to receive seed in the past, but now it just can't do it. If you sow seed there, it won't work. Others say that foul ground is ground that's been left more than one season, maybe in the in the year of rest, according to the Jewish uh, the Jewish command where the land was uh, was uh, to rest and go back there, and they would find land that was hardened again. One year of skipping is good for the nutrients for the soil. But it would be too hard to just plow like they would in the past. There would be extraordinary effort needing to be placed in there. I'm not sure what all that is. But one of the things that the Word of God tells us, especially he is applying it to spiritual things, is that God wants us to go through seasons where we break up the fallow ground to make our hearts ready for the Lord. And I thought about this whole piece of breaking up the fallow ground. There's another piece of that that many times we don't see. And you know, when, when a man is faithful, when a family is faithful to keep tilling that soil, 
to keep working and laying in nutrients as they can, to break it up every year, to, to rotate crops or whatever knowledge they may have of, of how to uh, maximize the soil's uh, output. You know, they, there's usually a certain distance below the top of the soil that's worked year after year throughout the season. It's worked over and over again, faithfully and uh, diligently worked. But underneath of that, there is something that begins to form. And I don't know for sure, but is it called a plow pan? Hard pan. Underneath, there is this area that begins to compact more and more under the work of the field. Underneath, where you cannot see it, it begins to get hard and it begins to, to crust over and it begins to, to no longer allow moisture down or up the way in which it should. And of course, uh, nutrients goes along with the, with the movement of moisture through the soil. That's, that's how nutrients is, uh, is brought to the plant's roots. And you know, I thought about how does this work in, in Christian families? So many times we are faithful in, in being obedient to lead our home and to lead the hearts of our children and to do, uh, you know, do diligence to share and to, and to seek after issues or walk through structure depending on what, what stage we're at. And yet it seems sometimes there's something lacking. There's something not quite the way in which it should be between the hearts of the parents and the hearts of the children. Or it could even be between the husband and wife. There's something that just isn't quite reaching. There's something that is not quite anointed. It's not quite real. It's not quite what it should be. We sense it, but at first, as we, as we continue to be faithful in the top of that soil, we sense it and we say, God, something doesn't seem quite right. I'm doing all that I have ever done, and yet, Lord, there is something forming. You know, spiritually, as we walk along, there is this, what do you call it? A hard pan. Okay, there, there is this hard pan that happens. There is this routine of things. Sometimes it can happen in a fellowship, you know, where we come together, we share communion, we wash one another's feet, and it's just the duty that we do, and our heart is not connected to it anymore. Or maybe we share in the holy kiss, and it's just something we do. Or we have our devotions in our home, and it's just how it is. And yet, there is this disconnect happening within the home, because this hard pan is beginning to form. And there's nothing wrong with a hard pan forming, but there is something wrong with a hard pan staying. If I understand it right, there is a implement that is only used for one purpose, and it's called a subsoiler. Am I kind of on the right page here? I'm a city guy, even though I live in the country. So I'm, uh, I'm scavenging whatever I can. This subsoiler's purpose is to go down in the ground and to break up the foul ground and no one can see. But the spirit has been hindered. The closeness has been somehow blocked. And God says, break up the fallow ground and make our hearts ready. We must be real and honest. Dads, dads, how are things in your home? Oh, every dad, I guarantee you, their heart sits right up when you hear that. Me included. There is no man who goes, oh, it's, it's perfect. It steps on everybody's attention toes. How are things in your home? You know, we all struggle through things, but I want to ask you, have you broken up the foul ground? 
Have you called out to God for that subsoil to come through and bust it up? I mean break it into complete nothing. One of the things that that's so amazing with uh, the Word of God, it tells us one of the clear indicators of revival, and whether it's corporate or individual, it doesn't matter, but one of the key indicators of revival is found in uh, Malachi 4, 6. And it says this, And he shall turn the hearts of the fathers to the children, and the hearts of the children to the fathers. Now, I do need to say this for myself context-wise. I never knew my dad. In fact, uh, I mean, I never met him. Uh, He died in 1984, and the only reason why I knew that is that I got a letter from the military letting me know that he had died. And so, for, for my life, I've never had a dad. I've never even had a father figure growing up. And so I do want to just say this, that as I'm sharing this about fathers and the call upon fathers, I do want to let you know that our God is the perfect father. You will never, ever lack when God steps in to take the role. Our children do not have to lack when our father steps in to take the role. But God will not step in when there is a father in the home because he wants to work through him as his hands and feet. And so I just want to make that clear. If anyone's in a situation far less than ideal, look to God. He will be your all in all. But God says, For he shall turn the hearts of the father to the children and the hearts of the children to the fathers. And again, we, every father, we, we sit up and we, we stand up in our hearts and we make ourselves ready. The thing that's amazing about this passage is it's not only the father's hearts who get turned when they have revival, it's the children's hearts that get turned to their fathers when they have revival. Isn't that awesome? One of the ways you say, Lord, where am I at with you? How am I walking with you? One of the indicators as a child, all of us who are, who are fathers are also children, is how is the condition of my heart turned towards my own father, my own mother? What is there? And so God intends to take both and turn them towards one another as His Spirit works. And God will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children. And it's more than just having a pile of them lined up down a line. Right? It's more than just being able to say, yeah, well, I'm one of 20. That's fine. The question is, how is the relationship that you have with them? How is the longing, how is the rest of your life positioned in order to know them and to walk with them? God, break up the foul ground. Lord, we want to make things ready. It is important. It is essential. And it is terribly spiritual. God will help us. God will guide us. You know, we only have our children for a short time. And even in a message where I have everything kind of boiled into one, I'm not specifically saying what age and where, but hopefully these things will apply in many areas as God stirs our hearts. My prayer is that that subsoiler will bust right through us today, all of us. We only have them for a short time, and being a father is a sovereign call. Being a mother is a sovereign call. But our number one ministry, our number one responsibility is not to the ministry of the church. Our number one call is not to the outreach, whatever it may be. 
Our number one call is not to our job. Can you say amen? Ah, thank you. Our number one call is not to our neighbors. Our number one call is not to our flower beds. Our number one call is not to whatever. Our number one call is to serve Jesus Christ and Him alone. All to Him surrendered, every piece of it. In fact, it's not even, it's not even that we serve our family first. Unless we love Him more than father and mother and brother and sister, wife and children, right? Even your own life, you cannot be my disciple. That's radical commitment. But you know, the most amazing thing happens when we lay everything down before the Lord. And we come to that place where we, where we give everything back to Him. And the subsoiler comes through and we begin to, our hearts begin to break. And we begin to give Him everything. And the nutrients of the Spirit begins to flow where it hasn't been in a long time. We look to our God and we say, Lord, what will you have me to do? And He turns around and He points right to your family and He says, go and serve them for me. That's powerful. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Mark chapter 5. I want us to talk a little bit and look at the example of the man who was, who was possessed by a legion of demons. It's in Matthew chapter 5, and I'm going to be reading a, a, a decent portion of the Scriptures here. Mark 5, starting at verse 1. Starting at verse 2. <clears throat> then Jesus got out <clears throat> of the boat, <clears throat> excuse me, and immediately a man from the tombs with an unclean spirit met him. Now I have the New American Standard, so I don't want to be a distraction with that. But uh, hopefully you can follow along. And he had his dwelling among the tombs, and no one was able to bind him anymore, even with a chain. Because he had often been bound with shackles and chains and the chains had been torn apart by him and the shackles broken into pieces and no one was strong enough to subdue him. He was possessed to other things. Verse 5. Constantly, night and day, he was screaming among the tombs and in the mountains and gashing himself with stones. Seeing Jesus from a distance, he ran up and he bowed down before him and shouted with a loud voice and he said, What business do we have with each other, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I implore you, by God, not to torment me. For he had been saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And he was asking him, What is your name? And he said to him, My name is Legion, for we are many. And he began to implore him earnestly to send them out and to to not send them out of the country. Now there was a large herd of swine feeding nearby on the mountain. And the demons implored him, saying, Send us into the swine so that we may enter them. Jesus gave them permission. And coming out, the unclean spirits entered the swine, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea, about 200 of them, and they were drowned in the sea. That's a perfect picture of the possession of the world and what happens with the things of the world. They just rush towards destruction. Their herdsmen ran away and reported in the city and in the country, and the people came to see what it was that was happening. They came to Jesus and observed the man who had been demon-possessed, sitting down, clothed, and in his right mind, the very man who, who had had the legion, and they became frightened. Those who had seen it described to them how it had happened to the demon-possessed man and all about the swine. And they began to implore him to leave their region. 
as he was setting, as he was getting into the boat, this is the part that really grabs my heart. As he was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon possessed was imploring him that he might accompany him. Ah, if that was you, wouldn't that be, oh Lord, I owe you so much already, can I just, can I be with you? But look at what he says. Verse 19. And he did not let him, but he said to him, look at this, go home to your people. Now, I believe, in fact, I know the King James says, go home to your friends. In the Greek, it's oikos. Go home to your house and your friends is the best rendering there. Jesus says, go home. Go home and there's a reason for why you need to go home. And it says, go home to your people and report to them what great things the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. Go home. You know, it's one thing that's amazing when, when somebody comes to know the Lord that comes out of the world, comes out of difficult circumstances in particular, and we sit with them and we see the brokenness upon their face of what the Spirit of God is doing for them. And, we, and, they, and they sit and they, and they weep. You know, it's one thing to lead someone to the Lord with their mind. It's another thing to see someone broken before God. You know, one, one is going to last. The other one is on the installment plan. And we're not sure if they're going to default or not. But when you see someone broken before God, one of the first things, what would you, what do we counsel them? How's your relationship, especially if it's a man? How's your relationship with your wife? Boy, it's terrible. How's your relationship with your children? I don't even know. I don't even, I don't know. I don't see them. What's the first thing we tell them to do? We're going to pray for you. We're going to walk with you because Jesus is sending you home. Oh no, I don't know that I can do it. I don't know that I can, I can be what, whatever he wants me to be. I don't, I've failed so often. And what do we tell him? We put our arms around him and we say, you're going to make it. And God's going to help you. And we're going to be here to help you. Amen? And it is powerful to see the trembling heart of a failed man turn back to his home. And with the help of Christ, begin to do everything he can to rebuild. Now, it's not a fairy tale story because many times it doesn't all heal up. Many times bitterness is so deep. Many times the, the others in the family have had so much resentment, it doesn't all heal up unless they come to know Jesus Christ as well. But that doesn't change the command upon that man's heart to go home, to turn their hearts back to the Lord, to go back there. Brothers and sisters, it is the same thing in the church, isn't it? Isn't it the same for us? There are many, I'm going to be honest, there are many wives who have tried to chain our hearts to their heart. There are many children who have tried to bind us to who they are. And yet we are so enamored or so focused on some other thing. They have long prayed for more than just us doing what we need to on the surface, but to cultivate a relationship, a discipleship within the home. And if it is good for the world, when they come to know Jesus, to send them home. Brothers and sisters, it's good for us in the church to be broken, break up the foul ground and return home. Are you all with me? God has called us to the ministry of the home above all else. 
You know, the ministry, so I'm a minister. The ministry is the overflow of an abundant home. It's not taking the water that belongs to the children and placing it somewhere else. Right? The outreach is the overflow of a well-oiled, well-cultivated home. But if we take the bread of the children and give it to something else, are we truly being faithful as we ought? Brothers and sisters, I want to just share my heart. God is calling us home. I don't know anything about your circumstances. But I do know this. It is radically important to Jesus. The very first thing he says, return, return home. What is good for the world is certainly good for an Anabaptist. The instruction for those who are coming to Christ, it is certainly the same instruction that should be modeled by us. And it's more than just keeping the field plowed and free of stones on the surface. We're talking about the hard pan. What's going on in the hard pan of your relationships? Because our relationships really do tell us where we're really at. God will help us. Turn with me to 2 Samuel 23. A powerful, one of my favorite scriptures. As I said, I've been reading through 2 Samuel. Again, just kind of chewing on it. But uh, when you go over to chapter 23, it's where we see David's mighty men. This is after Absalom tried to hijack the, the, uh, the kingdom and, and, you know, all that stuff went down. But in 2 Samuel 23, excuse me, going down to verse 15, I just, this is just amazing. These mighty men that surrounded David, there were, I think, 30 of them, but there were three in particular that, that were always by his side. And David did what what we often do. You know, he began to reminisce. He was feeling nostalgic. You know, I I don't know. It was the time of harvest, so I don't know if it was dry in that season. We just don't know. But somewhere along the line, with these men standing around him, he he makes a statement about his craving. He has a craving for water, just like I had a craving for water. But it wasn't just water that he wanted. It was a particular type. He's not remembering the taste of the water. He was remembering the experience of what God was doing in his life in that time, how he was feeling, and he's relaying something. And so we see this in verse 15. And it says, And David had a craving. And he said, Oh, that someone would give me water to drink from the well of Bethlehem, which is by the gate. I can just picture him gazing. He say, Oh, you know that well, the one right to the right of the gate? The one with the funny stones on the, on the one side? As a kid, I remember running around that well. If only I could have a drink from that place. He was just feeling very nostalgic. But his words meant an awful lot to the men who were there. And look what it says, starting in verse 16. It says, So the three mighty men broke through the camp of the Philistines. And they drew water from the well of Bethlehem, which is by the gate. Got it right from that same well. And they took it and they brought it to David. Look at this. Nevertheless, he would not drink it, but he poured it out to the Lord. I wonder how those men felt. Wonder what the, imagine it, you know, I don't know if they fought their way through. I talked about the garrison of the Philistines. So I don't know if, if they just said, you know what, boys, we're going to go straight through them. We're going to get that water and then we're going to come straight out. And by the way, don't spill the water. Maybe they put it in a pot or a jar or something. I don't know. And then they just go at it or, Did they sneak in and wisely 
stealth their way in and drop the bucket and pull it up, put it in, get out. I don't know. It says they broke through, but I didn't study it enough to know what that might mean. But they, they risked their lives and they bring David, they bring David this water. They wanted to please his heart. They loved him. David, of course, is a type of Christ. We know that. And David takes this water, realizes what it took for, for them to get this water into his hands. And he said, I, I'm not going to drink this. And he poured it out. If I was one of those mighty men, I don't know, I think I'd be quite offended. I'd be like, are you serious? After all that, you're not even going to drink it? I mean, maybe it wasn't cold enough. But David shares his heart. And he says, why? He says, because they've risked their lives for this. Should their blood be upon me? This is an incredible picture. And I say this with deep humility. You know, I say I'm humble. You know, can I have a button that says I'm proud to be humble? I say this with with contrition in my heart because these are the things that I constantly weigh myself. We constantly weigh these out. But it is so easy when we are God's mighty men to go and to do things that He did not ask us to do. It is easy to go and to justify holy, radical things that He never asked us to do. And in that moment, as we hold, as, as we offer up this cup of water to Him, and we say, Lord, for Your glory, for Christ and the Kingdom, for You! The question is, and this takes a discerning, humble spirit and a discerning, humble heart, and it's a journey of life. When Jesus holds that cup, does He receive it as good and faithfulness on our parts? Or does He pour it out and say, I didn't ask that of you. Oh Lord, I'm preaching the gospel all over the globe. Have you seen your children lately? No, they know it's for the sake of the ministry. Oh Lord, I'm traveling, I'm all over the place doing all this work to support my family. Do you know that your, that the heart of your wife is struggling? No, I don't know that right now because I'm doing this for you. And the question is, what we offer to God, will He receive it and we can say yes and amen? Or does He pour it out and say, I didn't ask that of you? Good people constantly get themselves in binds where they do things that God hasn't asked because it is a spiritual thing. Brothers, fathers in particular, do you know that all you have your hands laid to is exactly what God has commanded you? Because if you don't know that, I encourage you to seek Him because you very well may need a, a chisel plow to bust through the things in your heart. I'm in no wise saying we shouldn't be doing things that are spiritual. See, we live in an age where the culture all around us says, don't have children, don't bog down with that, have your fun now, and that attitude comes right into the church, it does. But the real issue around that isn't how many children you have lined up, but it is a self-centered spirit that doesn't want to serve and be broken the way in which Jesus has asked. What good is it if we have a big bank account when we leave this world, or we put perfect vegetables on our table, or our flower beds are perfect in every way, and we've missed the hearts of our children. 
You know it's busy. Oh, there's one thing after another, after another, after another. Dads, who's leading your home? Moms, who's leading your priority? May God give us wisdom. Absalom was responsible for what he did. But David gave him the excuse to get there. There are six things that I'd like to share. And if you're saying amen and ouch at the same time, I'm I'm with you. We're on this journey together. We are on this journey together. There is no sacrifice too great. There is no shift in who we are, what we do, and how we do it too great in order to fulfill the primary call of Christ. Six things that I would like us to look at just very quickly. Things, fathers in particular, things that that you need to take. You need to take leadership in. Because I believe these are the things that God models for us and, and commands us to do. First, we need to take the call of God very seriously in this area. Why don't you turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 5. Now this is a passage that talks about elders in the church and the calling and, and the responsibility upon elders. And I'm going to tell you what. There is a tremendous amount of responsibility there. And I do also want to just say this. We're, we're turning to 1 Peter chapter 5. I also want to say this. That when your leaders in any form, in particular in the, in the ministry, but we all serve, and we know that. We all serve in different capacities. I want to encourage you from a pastor's heart. Do everything you can to rally around them and make sure that they're not giving you and the congregation the children's bread. So here's, and I didn't talk to them, so I can say this with a clean conscience. Bless them tremendously. Help them get away and build their family relationships deeply. Encourage them. Yes, it is awesome when you always have a minister here in the church. It's very important and you need that stability. But I'm telling you, there is a cost involved. For the time that it takes for you to get ready in the morning, they have already prepared sermons and also gotten ready. Many times they've gotten phone calls just a few hours prior to service or throughout the week. They've had situations that are uncomfortable that take them away from their home. And do everything you can to bless them and not just bless them with your words. Let them get away. Let them have a break. Have them cultivate their family. Give them opportunities to, to, to work deeply in those things. Now, I know they're not going to say amen, and, and they, maybe they'll come and say, oh, no, we're, we're all good. But I'm just going to share from my own heart. It is tremendously important that you rally around them to that end. And let me also just say this. Be at peace to follow their leading. Because when we resist, it is so much work that takes away from all the other responsibilities that they have, and from one another. Just a little tidbit from my own heart. So in 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 1 through 3, talks about elders. Now, the, the interesting thing is here, is that God always talks in, in well, doesn't always, but most times he talks about the church as a family. Of all the things, you know, he talks about sheep and shepherds and, and that, but in most cases, it's referenced as a family. You know, the Bible says, relate to older men as fathers and younger Younger women as mothers and younger men as brothers and younger uh, women as sisters, yet with all purity. The whole piece is that. And then, and then those that are called of God to lead out in the congregation are typically called elders. 
like an elder brother. You know, anyone who has a family where the parents are getting older or there are situations that come up, typically you gather together as a family. And, and you sit and you talk about what do we do with, with, for mom and dad? How do we walk with this situation? And in most cases, you know, the strong personality will speak out. But they, the, the family looks to the elder brother. What do you think? What is your thoughts here? Everyone works together, but there's such a powerful importance in that. That's what God is saying when, it, when he's talking about the elder. And so, when we see the call of an elder upon the church, I guarantee this, it is only a, a reflection of the leading within the home as well. God would never ask for an elder to lead the church with these, with these heartfelt things and never expect that to also be happening in our homes. So I'm going to change this and say fathers. So look at this. Verse 1. I'm finally there now. In the same way... Whoops, where am I at? I'm in the wrong chapter. Here we go. Therefore, I exhort the elders, or the fathers, among you as your fellow elder and witness of the suffering of Christ and a partaker also of the glory that is to be revealed. Now look at this. Shepherd the flock of God among you. Shepherding is a skill that you increase in. It is a purposeful calling. It is a vocation. I know sometimes people try to be part-time shepherds, but it typically doesn't work too well. There is a tremendous amount of care that, that needs to happen there. Fathers and mothers too. There is a lot of care. I know all these people have all these needs. But again... If we are faithful in the talent given to us and we don't try to be faithful with the talent not given to us, God will give us what we need and what he wants in due time. So it says, shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion. Now imagine if, imagine if uh, some of your leaders came up one Sunday morning and they're like, oh boy, I'm here again. Hey, I, uh, yeah, I, you know, I really struggle. I'm not really sure I would like to do this job. But, um, you know, hey, I, God makes me do it. So I'm here today to, to tell you what you need to know or what I think God wants you to know. And I'm, uh, you know, I, again, I'd really rather have stayed in bed this morning because it was an hour difference. And, I, you know, I need my beauty sleep. And this doesn't, uh, doesn't really fit me too good. But, uh, you know, and I do the old, you know, I know there are other people more, you know, uh, whatever, and, and start that whole process. And, and you know, it's like when you hear that, you say, well, then let them come up and you sit down, you know. The whole thing here is, is that it's saying, God is saying to exercise oversight, not under compulsion. Exercise it. Work it. Be, be diligent about it. Cultivate it. The oversight within the home is a full-time job. You say, now, wait a minute, but i got to make a living. Sure you do. Are you making a living? Are you making a living? There's a difference. The kids might have a nice car, but I guarantee you, just like Absalom, if they don't have your heart, uh, they're, they're going to struggle to give theirs back to you. So here it says, it says, exercising oversight, not only compulsion, but voluntarily. What a blessing it is when someone comes alongside you and says, I just want to bless you. Oh, no, what? What did I do to deserve that? You didn't do anything. I just, I want to bless you. I want you to know I appreciate you and I, I care about you. What do our children sense from the posture of our hearts 
of the investment of our lives and from what they feel coming from, from our souls. So it says, but voluntarily, according, look what it says, according to the will of God. I can guarantee you that if you offer up to God nothing at the end of your life, but the most diligent investment you could give within your home, dads and moms, and you put that into His hand and you say, Oh God, I know I failed so much. When were you hungry and I fed you? When were you naked and I clothed you? But this is what I have to give you, oh Lord. I wish I could have done more. He'll take that cup and He'll say, Faithful servant, thank you for being my hands and feet. Because when you did it unto the least of these, you did it unto me. You know, sometimes I... I hear folks say, you know, I'm really searching for the will of God and, and, and that's good and we need to. And God will speak to us. We need to have a relationship for God to speak to us. But in the context of a young family in particular and a growing family, right here, right here, it says according to the will of God. Right there. It says, and not for sort of game. Well, I don't know about anybody getting rich on their children, but maybe, I don't know. Maybe if you take all their income till they're 30, maybe that'll... We'll have to see how that works out. But look what it says next. But with eagerness. Eager. So eager. That's an amazing thing. Nor yet is lording it over those allotted to your charge. You know, then sometimes we have guys that really are boom, 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 you know. So my family, everyone sits up straight. Everyone's, you know, boom, 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 you know. And they got it under the Lord. We can miss the heart there too. Say, oh man. <laughs> it says, but proving to be examples to the flock. Be an example. Does that mean that you won't have rebellious children? No. God's a perfect father and he had rebellious children. Look at the children of Israel. But I tell you what, you will remove all many excuses for the rebellious children to point at you as their reason for why they are the way they are if you have invested all that you are and all that you can into their lives. There is no rebellious Israelite who's going to go and say, God, you made me this way. Because it's just not true. Our children are not chance. I think of that whole eagerness piece. Our children are not byproducts. Our children are given to us by God. They are a gift they are privileged. They are a reward. The Bible is very clear on how he views children. Do you reflect that same heartbeat of God? But you know, our children know if we view them that way or not. I can't remember what illustrations I used here or not, so forgive me if I repeat myself. I'm getting older, so I can say it's okay. There's an amazing story about uh, right after World War II, there was a mission, uh, a, a local Mennonite um, group that decided they were going to send missionaries over to Japan. If I share this with you, forgive me. I'll, I'll tell quick so I won't bore you with it. And so they went to the northern part of Japan after the war. Very difficult scenario with the whole, you know, with the Allies and the Americans and the, and the bomb and all that. But anyway, they, they were able to make they were able to make connections. They were they were able to start building a congregation, and some people began to come because they lived there among the people and they and they cared for them genuinely. So anyway, periodically communications are coming back and forth between, um, you know, Japan's mission, which is still there today, and, and the local uh, mission board, or however it worked, I don't know that much detail of it. 
And one of the things the missionaries would say, we're really struggling with, with helping them to understand or to, or to, um, to wrap their hearts around the biblical uh, command for, for the woman's veiling, for headship order, which the headship order is deeper than just the woman's veiling. It's, it's much deeper. And so, oh, they struggle. Well, we'll pray for you and keep doing that. And, and so year after year, you know, they say, well, we're still struggling. Are any of the ladies veiling? No, they won't veil. It's, it's against their culture. It's, it's countercultural. The interesting thing is that a few years after this mission started, one started in southern Japan by the Seventh-day Adventists. And there they began to, to uh, propagate their, their beliefs and their culture and their practice. And one of the things that Seventh-day, certain groups of Seventh-day Adventists do is they say that, that uh, all caffeine is a sin. Oh, man, what would we do if that happened to us? All caffeine is a sin. And so they tell them, you cannot drink tea. So this mission church down there in southern Japan began to tell the people that you can't drink tea. When you go to a Japanese restaurant, what's the first thing they put in front of you? They put tea, right? And guess what? The people were laying down their tea. You say, no, wait a minute. Why did the Japanese in the southern part, who weren't sitting under truth, to be very plain, were willing to lay down their tea, but the people in the northern part weren't willing to lay down their, their ideals and put on a woman's veiling. What was the difference? Well, the answer is really plain because in not too distant a past, the group that had sent that mission out and started that mission, they took off the veil and the missionaries took off the veil and you're never going to convince someone of the thing you don't have a conviction for yourself. We'll never convince anyone that which we, we feel shackled to and we don't really have it ourselves. Do our children know and feel our conviction for them? You know, we can't convince, convince them. We can't instill into them the sovereignty of their life and their call if we don't believe it or see it ourselves. God has called us to invest a vision, to invest in them. God has a call on their life. And it is powerful. And it, if it takes everything that you are, it is worth all of the sacrifice. It's awesome. I don't know if any of you heard the story. I, I gotta watch this so I don't get long today. I don't know if you heard, anybody heard about the documentary called The Drop Box. I don't know if you had anything with it. If you have a chance, look it up. And it's a story of a very unassuming man in southern Korea who, uh, people just started, well, in, in, in Seoul, South Korea, uh, it's the practice there because of the shame attached to the culture of, of an unwed mother to have a baby. But, of course, they don't have the power of God within them to be moral. So the, the girls get pregnant, and then they leave their babies out to die on the streets. That's what they do. They're not the only country that does that. There are other ones as well. And so, anyway, in the hundreds, babies die there every year because they're left out on the streets. And a local minister there goes out, and looks for these children. And many times they would find them dead. And then finally, he, he came to the conclusion he was going to put a drop box in his house. This is a powerful story. The young girl could come to the outside of the building, open the drop box, put the baby in, close the door, and a bell rings. And if you have the chance, I don't know when it will come out on, on DVD to watch. It is very good. It is very godly. And it is very Christ-like. But anyway, so focus on the family, and I'm not endorsing focus on the family, but they got a hold of this story because they had like 15 
uh, physically and mentally handicapped children that they have, and hundreds of babies come through this drop box every year. When they were doing this documentary, they had been there for nine days. Eight babies had been dropped off in those nine days. And so people, some people will criticize and say, well, by doing that, you're, you're, you're encouraging people giving up the babies. And the minister is saying, we're not encouraging them to be immoral. But if one baby can be saved from being killed on the streets, I'll do whatever I can to make it happen. And so anyway, this, this guy said, heard this story, and he was not a Christian. He ended up getting saved. But he goes over and he documents this story. Because, and, they say, and he said, Pastor Lee, can you do this documentary? And his statement was, I, I'm sorry, I am too busy loving the children that God has brought my way. But if you want to follow me around and help me, you can, you can be part of that. What do our children feel coming out of our lives? Huh? That commitment from that man, you know what? The subsoiler has come through that man's heart. And it all started when he birthed a severely handicapped child who has never talked, never sat up, Never communicated. He still takes care of him to this day. And he said that, he didn't say the subsoiler, but he said, God came through my heart in such a way it broke every piece of my pride away. He says, so now, if you want to come, you may come, but I'm not going to leave my, my sheep for anything else. Brothers and sisters, the Bible tells us that children are an inheritance and a reward. We believe that. Do our children believe that yet? God will help us. Number one, take the call of God seriously. My desire is that this isn't just a message like, okay, it's good, and we go eat potato salad. What does God want to do with our hearts this very day? Second is take the lead. Turn with me to Genesis chapter 18. This, too, is one of my favorite scriptures. You know, we talk about the Proverbs 31 woman. You know, periodically I'll say to my wife, well, you're a P31, you know. Proverbs 31 woman. Truth is, is that I did a series uh, on um, on the priority the priority call upon our women, and there's three primary stages. And when, the second stage is when when a, a, a family is pretty much past the childbearing years, their children are growing and getting older, and and uh, then with the children, the wife in particular can begin to serve others and to begin to cultivate bigger and better, so to speak. You know, the clothing of purple and the, all that type of stuff, and and all that is good. She is in the older, she's not an old, older person. She's not old. We don't ever, no lady's ever old. Forgive me, ladies, I'm sorry. She's not, she's not matured in years, uh, to the point that she is still not nurturing children, but she is in a place where now she has, she has extra. And that extra is not to be invested in helping us men with our business. That extra is not supposed to be to make them grow more vegetables so we can save five bucks. Their, their extra is to be poured back into the other women in the church. Those that are at the earlier stage. And that P31, that Proverbs 31 woman was probably in her 50s. It says her husband took his seat among the, the gate with the elders. He was, he was close to 60 or a little above. They were at a different stage than where many of you ladies are, where you're bearing children and, and you're raising children, and you're making meals and you're, and you're really busy. Anyway, that said, for us men, you know, we got the Proverbs 31 woman goal. And uh, I would I would give this as a challenge to you to be a Genesis eighteen nineteen man. Look what it says. It talks about Abraham. It's just one verse. The ladies get a whole chapter. We just get one verse from me today. This is amazing. 
New American Standard says, for I have chosen him. He's talking about Abraham. King James says, for I know him. Okay? This is God speaking of Abraham. This is awesome. He says that he will command his children, and this command isn't boom, 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 boom. Remember, right? Lording it over, boom, boom, boom. He will command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness, this is very interesting, and justice. A home that gaps in justice will have issues. A home that gaps in righteousness will have issues. The children will sense either one of those gaps and it will create difficulties. And we, and I don't have time to even look into what that means and how that plays out, but let it, let it, let it be on your heart and you do, you do the study. But look what he says. He says, for I know him that he will command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice so that the Lord may bring upon Abraham what he has spoken about him. Now, when I first read this passage, I thought God was saying that because Abraham's going to be a godly father, his seed is going to bless all the nations of the earth. So I'm going to allow, I'm going to make what I have promised to come upon him happen. When you look in the language a little bit in the Hebrew, it gives a little bit, in fact, it gives a very different feel here. It gives a picture into the sovereign, because here's what it is. It says, I have chosen him because he will. And then it goes on, it says what he will do within his home. And then it says, and then God says, that I may bring upon Abraham what I have spoken about him. The Hebrew says what I have just spoken about him. The interesting thing is, is that because Abraham faithfully came to God and said, here I am, I'm going to be faithful to you. I'm going to do whatever it takes to be obedient to you. God pours the anointing out on him to fulfill it. Now we know the promise came later. We know his seed. We know all that that's there. That was all part of that too, I imagine. But in this moment, it's referring back to the command. It's like saying, children of Israel, go to the Red Sea and cross it. And they're standing there and the Red Sea is like still flowing. They're like, "Um, what do we do here, God? And he says, cross it! And then he pours out upon them what they need in order to fulfill it. When that foot went in, what happened? It began to push away. And they walked. They walked through on dry ground. Huh? Let me tell you something. Dear men, you put your heart to put God first in all things. You put God first to, to, to obey Him in the area of your family. Your feet may be shaking, your knees may be knocking, but if you go forward and you say, God, here I am to do it your way, He will anoint you to fulfill it. It takes relationship, but He will bring you through on dry ground. Isn't that awesome? That means, you know what that means? I don't have to be the perfect dad. (sighs) I just have to be a needy dad who cries out to the Lord for help. And my Father will anoint me for that work. So that doesn't mean somebody else is a better dad than me. That doesn't mean somebody else is a better mom than my wife. That doesn't mean somebody is a better son than what, what I am or you are. What you need to do is say, God, I'll take it at your word. I want to do it your way. God, I want my heart to turn back to my father. Lord, I want my heart to turn back to my children. Lord, I want my heart to turn back to my mom. Lord, my extended family, whatever it takes. Oh, God, I will do all that I can as much as lies within me. I know it may not always work out right, but you will anoint me in this process to fulfill your heart. And there is something supernatural, spiritual about that journey. You can't get it from a book. You can only get it from a relationship. God, walk with us. 
Take the lead. Take the lead. Ask, how are you doing? You know, somewhere I heard somebody say, a dad had said, well, my, 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 uh, I think it was a daughter. I don't know. My daughter's kind of a quiet type. I don't think she has a lot of thoughts, really. Not that she's dumb, but I don't know. I just don't think she thinks real deep in stuff. Guess what? That's an evidence of a father who has a big disconnect to the hearts of his children. There is no young person or older person that doesn't have a tremendous amount of feelings, tremendous amount of opinions, tremendous amount of, of uh, struggles. They're standing at crossroads left and right. And each one of them is so very important. It's about connecting. Take the lead. How are you doing? How are you doing spiritually? How's your walk with the Lord? How's purity going in your life? Not long ago, I met with somebody who struggled in the area of purity. And I said, has your dad ever asked you about these things? And he said, no, he never went there. Dad, take the lead. Be real. Purpose to go before them. Purpose to dig into their hearts. The more resistant they are, the more you need to pray, and the more you need to press. Not press like goo goo boom boom boom, right? I think you get that. For me personally, that would be my nature. Boom 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 boom. But that's not godly either. Boom boom doesn't produce godliness. Ignoring things doesn't produce godliness either. Brokenness. Brokenness brings anointing. God's anointing brings progress. God's progress is in his hand and in his cup, and he will be glorified by it. We're all called. We're all called to reach into one another's life and be real. Now, I know we're in a culture where we act right, and we look right, and we smell right, and we respond right. But you know... If somebody is pursuing you enough to to be real and and they're trustworthy, you know, you'll open up. And as Lyndon has done a great job at bringing before my understanding is the scripture in James, confess your faults one to another and pray for one another, you may be what? Healed. That is so powerful. If we all look right and act right, we're never going to confess, we're never going to pray, and we're just going to be sick, good-looking Christian people. We've got to get ugly in order to get God. And if, we do, if we're doing well, amen, then abound still more. We're not all bad. But God to be increasing as we decrease in our journey. Powerful, powerful. So, take the call seriously. Take the lead in reaching into the world of one another, especially into Oikos, in your family, your house. And then you need to take the hit. Take the hit. You don't need to turn there. But in the end of Joshua's account, in chapter, I think it's 24, I think, is the last chapter there. You know, poor Joshua. Again, I try to, when I, as I think through these people, I try, to, I try to, re, to feel what they, what I think they're feeling. Maybe that's wrong to do. But Joshua was a discouraged leader. You know, he was really discouraged at the end. And, uh, you know, finally, you know, he, you know, I think it was chapter 23 or something where he goes, he goes, he basically says, you're not going to serve the Lord. <laughs> and the people go, oh, yes, we will. We're going to serve him. Yeah, 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 yeah. He goes, no, you're not. You're not. You're not. In fact, he makes a statement that you're not able to serve the Lord. It's very interesting. No, 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 no. We can serve. We can serve. No, no, no. He says, good. Then they put up these big stones, I think it was, by the oak tree as a reminder. Then we go into chapter 24, and Joshua comes to this place where he has that statement that we all know, as for me and my house, right? 
He boils it back to his household. He was a godly leader. He did what he needed to do. He was faithful to God. He was so discouraged, what right or wrong, he was so discouraged that he got to the point where he boiled it back. He says, listen, listen, you have a choice to make. Either serve the gods across the Jordan on the other side of your fathers, or serve the gods of the people in whose land we now dwell. Right? He, he Two sets of gods. He says, but as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. It doesn't matter what this family does. It doesn't matter what that family does. It doesn't matter what this congregation does. It doesn't matter what that congregation does. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. When all boils down and we go before the Lord, He turns us back to our homes as leaders. That is our primary domain. It's very interesting because as, as leaders, we need to take the hit. Now, I, I, now, I'm not qualifying any of this. So you might go, oh, wow, Rex, what are you saying? Well, there are two sets of gods, just like what Joshua said. There's the gods of the world and there's gods of religion. And God, I believe, tells us all, listen, choose this day who you're going to serve. Now, I know that was a little different spot, but the same principle. You know, we have the gods of the world. We have the entertainment of the world. But you know what? We have the entertainment of the religious community, too, you know. In the world, you know, you have certain type of music. In the church, we have gossip. In the world, you know, we have the attitudes of the world and we have the hypocrisy of the church. You know, when we look out in the world, we have the world's fashion. But in a lot of ways, we have lukewarmness within the church. Fathers, we need to take a stand to lead against both of those gods. To do what is right in the sight of God. And if no one else will do it. Hey, listen. More and more and more we see people in the church just like the world. I mean, that's just how it is. More and more. It's, as long as you can put a dove and a fish on it, somehow it's okay. And that isn't true. That isn't true at all. Where are those lines? Well, I'll tell you where I think they are. But that doesn't mean you'll see them the same. But I will tell you this. Someone who has a heart that's postured to say, I want to follow God with everything in me, are not going to be looking for the lines. But at very minimum, it needs to be happening in our homes. If there are lines being pushed within our household, dads, you are responsible for those lines being there. If you say, well, I don't know why, I don't know why my little girl does those things, you know, it's such a shame. Dads, I'm going to just encourage you to look in the mirror. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. What is the call of your heart? True story. Now, of course, I'm, I'm jumping back to something small. When we had first moved in the area, uh, Lancaster County, this is 17 years ago? 17 years ago. Somewhere in that range after we had first moved down this way, and uh, we, we connected with this, this young family kind of at the same stage we were at, and uh, really a lot of God talk, and I really appreciated that, and, and we kind of gravitated. We were on a journey. We're still on a journey. I mean, I think I know where we, where we, I know where we stand, but we're on that journey to, we're just like you. And, uh, anyway, we're at the house and we're talking, we're up in the, we're up in the kitchen. I remember we were talking, God, this and God, that, God, God, God. And we're, we're always very watchful over our children. I'm not saying we always do well at it, but, uh, some of the things from my wife's upbringing and, and things like that, we keep an eye on them when they're, especially when they're young and, and, and sometimes maybe a little, a little too protective. I don't, I don't think so, but very watchful for sure. And, uh, Anyway, I noticed that Rex, of course, he's a big, tall guy now, but back then he was Rexy. Don't call him Rexy, okay? 
But I remember I looked around. I couldn't find him anywhere. And so I walked. I walked. I kind of left the conversation. And I kind of, and I, and I heard children. So I went down in the basement. They had young children too. And I remember when I came around the corner, one of the family we were visiting, their children, one of their children, had a, had a toy pistol in his hand up to Rex's head. And I, and of course he didn't see me come in. He goes, I'm going to blow your brains out. And Rex saw me and he goes, Daddy, what's he doing to me? And I went over and I put my hand on the, on the toy gun with the boy and I put my hand on, on his shoulder and I said, son, we don't do that. He goes, well, I do. And I said, well, you're not going to do that with, with my son. He goes, he goes, I'll do whatever I want. And I said, come on, let's go talk to your dad. He goes, no, I'm not talking to you and I'm not talking to my dad. So anyway, I took Rex by the hand and we went up and still God, 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 Jesus, God. Kind of waited a minute and I said, um, Hey, just real quick, I, here's what happened. I just kind of relayed the circumstance. And I said, and, uh, we don't, we don't play with guns like that. And, and unfortunately that was a, that was a really bad circumstance. And I'm sharing this with you because I'd want it shared with me if it was happening for my children. Because I wasn't trying to say my children were perfect. And I remember the, the husband kind of goes, I can't remember exactly what he said, but it basically boiled down to, he goes, um, yeah, boys will be boys. Anyway, you guys want some punch? So we left there that day, and when we got in the van or the car or whatever it was, I remember I said to my wife, I said, they're really nice folks, but we're not going to be visiting with them anymore as a family. That might seem harsh. The question is, how serious do you take the call to lead your family? They had a different set of criteria, a different set of rules. But unfortunately, I wasn't going to let the gods that they have Come into my home. I have my own to battle. As for me and my house. Number four, take time. We have to take time. And the Bible says, train up a child in the way in which he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart. Very interesting. One of the, one of the fellows in our church, he, um, they got saved and baptized last October. And that was an amazing thing because we, we went down to the Junietta River, and it was the most beautiful sunny day for them. What a blessing. And, Baptize them. Anyway, of course, you know that journey that happens when, when you get saved while you're in the Amish church. Him and another family were, were excommunicated and they, they started this journey. So Felty's family is still with us as they, as they journey along. And he's a, he, he works at a sawmill and he, and he cuts wood. And I, you know, I asked him, I said, you know, when you cut a log, you just, you just cut it through. You just cut it. You do, I forget if it's called plain sawing or, or what. You just cut straight across that log to get as much Board footage out of it as you can, right? But you know, when, when it comes to that scripture about training a child in the way in which they should go, there's no question that we are to direct our families in the will and the word of God. But there is a cultivating piece within that passage. You know, a, a logman or, or a saw mill or whatever you might say, their goal is to get as much footage out of that log as they can. But you know, children don't work like that. Children aren't designed like that. A craftsman will take a piece of wood and he'll study the grain in the wood. And in his mind, he will say, now what does this grain, what does this grain do? What does this grain embody? And he'll look at the designed grain and then begin to train that piece of wood in the way in which it should go. The way in which it was called. 
the way in which it was created. And he begins to shape it for that particular thing. Many times in the... We try to put our children through the planer. First two come out nice. The third one goes... And we say, what happened to him? Yeah, I did the same thing with all 27 of them. And then this one just looks like a green bean that's gone wild. I want to tell you something. The grain of that child is not meant for that planer. And Dad, you missed it. I'm not saying you're to blame, but you missed a great opportunity to partner with their created strengths to help shape them in the way in which they should go. Now, a lot of times, you know, we come through the planer, and we're good. You know, all right, I'm good with that. And then, and then, you know, we find our way from there. But sometimes, I'm telling you, you get some pretty good whirly twirls. It's like uh, Arby's, uh, Arby's French fries, you know. It's like, wow. God has given wisdom to each father to see the grain of their child. Now, I'm not talking about catering to rebellion. I'm not talking about walking after foolishness. I'm not talking about any of that stuff. The tail doesn't wag the dog. We have to be wise. And yes, they still may say, no thanks. But um, we need to invest our time into understanding them, working them with the Lord, praying for them, discerning the grain of who they've been created to be, and help to build and release them to that point. It is a blessing. It is a help. And I think it helps us from pulling our hair out. Maybe I should say for myself. What does God have in those children? Rex is back there smiling. What are you smiling about? (laughs) See, that's a bad part. They get picked on, right? I love my children, and I am so grateful to the Lord to have them. You know, when they're little, they're spacemen, and they're acting out, you know, things in the backyard, and they have baby dolls, and they're being mommies and all that stuff. You know, taking the time there. You know, here's the thing with time. There's only so much that fits in our lives, but something else has to go, you know. Something else has to be sacrificed in order to get the time you need. Are you all with me? I'm going to tell you something right now. A father who, we're all busy, and a mother too, we're all busy, right? If anyone's not busy, let me know. I'd like to share some of our busy with you. It's busy. The question is, what are you sacrificing in order to keep your primary ministry in complete and clear focus? Are you? Let me tell you this. You're called to sacrifice all else in order to get the time needed to cultivate relationship. And I will say this, but not because I talk to these brothers, even when it comes to ministry. God works in seasons, too. last thing we ever want to do is feel so locked into something that we we give away all the children's bread while we try to minister to God's people. I know you can't shake your head because they're going to indicate it. What I'm saying is we need to come along and support one another. Very real, very deep, cultivated ways. Taking time. Just a few more and I'm going to finish up quickly. We need to take care. Men, and I'll speak this from my personality bend, and uh, maybe some of you will be able to identify with this. We must take care not to hide behind our authority. Somebody who's a megagog, you know, boom, go, boom, go, boom, go, boom, go, boom, right? I'll speak to you men. I already spoke to the ones who are more apathetic and, you know, they let their wives because they have stronger personalities kind of run to roost. The Bible says 
at least for elders, it says take the oversight thereof. Guess what? Let me go back. If your wife is skilled and very involved and she takes care of everything, so you can sit and sip sweet tea, you know, underneath the oak tree all day, you are not taking seriously your call. Bible says for you to take the oversight thereof. Don't lay it upon your wife's shoulders. She's supposed to help you. <laughs> Honey, can I help you? Uh, it should be the other way around. Honey, what can I do to help you? Men change diapers, right? Or is that women's work? I'll let you answer that later. But this whole idea of hiding behind your authority. You know, as a, as a man of the home, who's going to question you? Who's going to question what you do? Noah's a great example. You know, Noah, you know, he built the ark. He was faithful. They came through the flood. The ark settled down. You look at the passages. It's really interesting. It says, they came out. And it says, and Noah built, uh, Noah planted a vineyard, drank, and got drunk. Boy, that happened fast. Boink. It's amazing what you can do in one sentence. You can put a lot of time in that one sentence. You know the story. So he's in the tent. And he's drunk. And his one son comes in and goes, oh! Look at Dad. Oh, no. I cannot believe Dad has done this. And he goes out and he goes to his brothers. And he says, hey, brother, you need to go and see Dad. This is so shameful, but this is funny. Or whatever he said. Maybe, maybe he was so ashamed he went and told him. I don't know. But we know he scorned his dad. And the other two brothers came in. Remember what they did? They took a sheet and they laid it upon their shoulders. And they backed up over their father and they covered his nakedness. Anyway, the interesting thing is is that when Noah came to himself out of his drunken stupor, he learned what had happened. Do you remember what he did? He cursed his boy. He cursed him. He said, your, your descendants will be the servants of theirs. He cursed him. And there wasn't anyone on the face of the earth to question Noah's authority. God may correct me, and you are welcome to correct me if you want. Just don't do it publicly. No, I'm just kidding. Noah was wrong. Noah was wrong. He got drunk. And he covered up his shame by getting angry at his boy for seeing him that way. He should have been repentant and broken for what he did. (coughs) But instead, he put the whole responsibility and his wrath upon his boy. And it stuck. Fathers, there's a tremendous amount of authority that you carry and a tremendous amount of responsibility, don't hide behind it to justify your anger, your control, or whatever. I hope you hear me, because it'll look in order, it'll look right, and it's going to blow up, because it isn't real. I remember when our Josiah was small. I'm going to look at him. He's going, oh no, Dad's going to tell the story. Josiah was really small. Now I'm going to tell you something about Josiah. I'm a, he's a very loyal very caring young guy. His mom and I have seen the Lord working in his life a lot in these last year and a half or so in particular. I have a lot of respect for Josiah. But Josiah by far was the most difficult child that we have had. When he was little, what I'm saying is God got a hold of him. So this is, this is the past him. When he was just a little guy, he was the type... You know, you, you discipline him, and then you put him back at the table, and you say, you need to eat this. And he was a little guy, and he'd just go, he'd look at you with them blue eyes and just kind of blink at you. He wouldn't say much, and he'd just go, 
You discipline them again, put them back up to the table, sit them down, love on them, you know, and then he'd go, This went on over and over and over again. In fact, for a period of time in our lives, we chose not to go out to visit other people because we had to work with his, with his heart. Rex, obviously, is a totally different personality than him. You know, Rex was just like, blah, 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 blah. And Josiah wouldn't say a thing, right? He'd just blink at you, blink, blink. You'd leave him in the room and Rex is like, what do you think, Josiah? Should we play this? Let's do this. Should we go ahead and do this? Let's do this. And uh, and then all of a sudden we'd hear a blood-curdling scream and we'd come in and Josiah would still be sitting next to him like looking straight ahead like, what just happened, you know? Rex is rolling around foaming at the mouth, right? And like, what's the matter? He goes, he bit me! Like, what? Pull up his shirt. Not only did he bite him, he took a chunk out of the guy. And the whole time, Josiah would be like, what? What happened? What happened? As if, you know, as if somebody else came in and did it, you know. He would say, oh, I missed it. What happened? Most amazing thing, I know I'm, I, we're laughing now, but we were not laughing then. I, our goal was to just make sure he did not kill himself or us kill him by mistake uh, by the time he would reach accountability. He's totally different now, but I want to tell you a story. This is why I'm telling you this little bit of funny thing as I wrap this up. So we had just redone a house. I put out all new carpets, of course. We did everything. Everything was brand new. Moved in, hadn't been there long. Josiah was the type when no one was around, he'd go and get something. He was malicious in his nature. At least that's how we perceived it at the time. And uh, even though he was a young guy. Anyway, we had a, a, a wipey box that we used for holding markers. And I remember we had put, put them up there, and I made it clear to both him and Rex. I said, those markers, I know some of you can relate to this story, right? Maybe I'm hitting some of you at the stage you're at. And I said, you see those markers? You know, and... Rex would go, yeah, I know those markers. Those are nice markers. I really like those markers. I'm like, okay, hold on. Josiah, do you see those markers? And he go, and uh, I'm like, you do not pull them down. You do not use them unless mommy or daddy get them for you. Do you understand? Rex like, I understand. Yeah, I really understand. I understood the first time you told me. I understand. Okay. So, anyway, I went to work, and I came home, and when I, when I came in, Josiah was in the bedroom, and I came in, and I knelt down to him, and I gave him, I gave him a hug, and uh, you know that type of thing. Anyway, when I got up, I happened to, I happened to look over on the rug, and I saw that there was a black marker, mark on this brand new rug. So I looked at that, and I looked a little bit closer at it, and I, and I said, Josiah, is that a marker? Is that, is that from a marker on the rug? And he went, I said, Did you do that? He goes. I said, you sit down right there. And I pulled out a little chair. I said, you're in big trouble. Do you know what I'm saying? He goes, so he sat in the chair. I went and got a washcloth, put some soap on it because I had a servant spirit about me. And I knelt down and I began to scrub this thing out of my brand new rug with the spirit of Christ. Wink, wink. And the whole time I'm saying, you know what? That, that displeases the Lord. I have to pull the Lord into it. That displeases the Lord and that displeases me. Do you understand? And I'm scrubbing this thing. And then I look over and of course there was another one. So I began to scrub that. And I found I think one or two more. I'm scrubbing these things. And I said, Josiah, what did you do? And he went like this. I said, you mean to tell me you took the cap off of this and you threw it in the air? And he's like, I'm like, oh, you were in big trouble. 
you are going to get. I'm doing my thing. I'm doing my thing. Anyway, I'm doing my thing. I'm cleaning the floor. I turn around, and there is a mark right where I had just cleaned it prior. And I'm thinking, what is going on? And all of a sudden, I looked down at my shoe, and on the tip of my shoe, I had picked up some grease. When I had come into the bedroom to kneel down to give him a hug, I put the first mark on my rug. And when I saw that, I looked at him, and I said, you didn't do this, did you? And he said, dirt on your shoe. I said, why did you say you did it? He goes, and I went over to him. I, you know, you know that feeling? He's just like, wow. I said, Josiah, I am so sorry. And I, I repent before the Lord and you. I, can you forgive me? And he's like, yeah. Can I go play? Yeah, go ahead. And I learned a really valuable lesson that day. I didn't learn that you don't hold accountability. But I learned that that in my anger, I saw what I wanted to see. But I was the guilty man, just like David, right? With Bathsheba and the whole scenario with Nathan. Brothers, watch over your home. But don't hide. Take care not to hide behind your authority. You know, control control and apathy are both false limbs for really cultivating your, your family. Both give an appearance, one gives an appearance of peace. You know, when you're free falling from a building, it's very it's very wonderful until you hit the end. And the other one under tight control feels ordered, but everything's just waiting to bust loose. Either one's going to be God. And finally, this is my final thing here, is take the action to change. Remember back in the beginning where I said one of the evidence of revival in our hearts is God will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to the fathers. It's a two-way street. We see that same thing in the story of the prodigal son. There are two keys in that story. Well, there's many, but two things related to, to kind of the topic we're looking at. The first is, is that, you know, and I believe I did share this before here, but again, I, I'm not going to think that maybe you remembered it all, but, you know, when the son was in the home, his heart was longing out. So he wore the father's clothes, he ate the father's food, he was in the father's house, but the whole time he was postured outward, which is a lesson that we can look right, act right, smell right, but our heart condition is what God is after. If we long for the things of the world, we'll be looking for the edges to be as worldly as we can be and still be in the Father's house. It's, a, it's called hypocrisy is what that's called. But anyway, he was longing out. You know, by the time he spent all the money, he left, he did all his things, he's eating pig slop, you know. And, he, and, and it says that he came to his senses. Immediately when he came to his senses, he turned his gaze from the pig slop to the Father's house. Now, I don't know how many miles away he was. But I can promise you, at that moment, he was closer to the Father's house than he was when he lived there. Revival of change for a young person, I'm telling you right now, you are as close to God as you want to be. You are not being shaped and pushed by your experiences or by your current circumstances. Satan would want you to know that. One thing that's very real, everyone goes through struggles, especially as a young person. When we are young and immature, we'll blame it on something. The thing is, is that it's a common experience for everyone. 
If we're adopted, we'll say, well, I'm this way because I'm adopted. If we're a minority, we'll say, well, I'm this way because I'm a minority. If we were raised in a very strict home, I'm, I'm this way because of my strict home. If we were raised in a home where everyone was happy but nobody, nobody really connected hearts, well, I'm this way because no one connected hearts. We peg our sin nature on something external. God calls us to take account of who we are and what we do and take ownership of what we do and who we are and bring it to the cross and find a change of heart. When that young boy was in the pig slop and his heart started thinking of home, he started a journey. He started a journey. And that's what's so beautiful about God. You know, you don't have to be in the church to be radically on the right direction. But when someone's on the right direction... They'll get into the house, they'll wear the father's clothes, they'll eat the father's food, and there'll be a huge difference between the one who is still there, just like the son that stayed, he was full of bitterness, he's full of jealousy, and the other one came and found total redemption and acceptance. It's awesome. And so, the first is, is that, and when revival hit that young man's heart, he began a journey home. The other piece that I want us to note is look at how And remember how the father was postured. He was postured in a loving, merciful, longing way. But you know, he was like that before his son left. That's amazing. And so as the boy was still a long way off, the father couldn't contain himself because he was so filled with his call as a dad. And he ran to him and fell upon his neck. And the boy was like, oh no, Dad. I've sinned against you and I've sinned against God. The father said, get him the best robe. Put a ring on his finger. Kill the fatted calf because we are going to party tonight. My son who was dead is back. Fathers, children, mothers, daughters, sons, we need to take action to change. We have to take action to change. God's anointing will meet us at the point where we cry out for change. It's not his fault. It's not her fault. It's not your fault. It's not their fault. It's not this situation's fault. It's not the church's fault. It's not these hypocrites' fault. It's not the fact that we didn't have enough money's fault. It's not anybody's fault. It's yours! And the answer is found at the foot of the cross. Are you all with me? All things are met there. All things. Brothers and sisters, I'm just going to share the depth of my heart and then I'm going to take us to a time of prayer. We need revival. I know I keep saying that every time I come here. You'll be like, this guy is just a broken record. I feel it in my soul and my heart. We need a real revival among our people. And I don't just mean here in my church. I mean among our people, especially among our Anabaptist people. We need a revival. We need a revival of trueness. We need a revival of family. We need a revival of holiness. We need a revival of humility. We need a revival of of looking at things as they are and saying, God, what do you want us to be? We need a revival of these things. We, We have to stop acting like it's all right. And we need to start getting right before God. God, work within us. So hopefully you heard my heart here. Today, for some of you, is your point of change. Some need to abound still more. Moms and daughters, fathers and sons. 
Some of us need to abound more, and we all do. There's no one that will walk away and say, this doesn't really apply to me. Some of us need a complete uh, subsoiler event in our lives. I don't know how God wants to do it. Maybe he's already in the process of it. Maybe this rings true with your spirit today. But you need to humble yourself. And you need to cry out to God for his anointing. And let God do his work. So I wrestle a little bit at these moments. How do we do this? What is right? I know I want us to kneel together. But I'm asking you, what does God, what is God speaking to you by the Spirit today? What is He speaking to you? Will you, will you turn with me? I'm gonna, and let's turn and kneel at our seats if we can, if you're able. I just want to leave just a moment open. Will you cry out to the Lord? And I, and I don't want in any way to fabricate anything, but I will tell you this, that if you feel as if you want to cry out publicly this morning, please do in this, in this moment. But don't feel obligated to produce something. Just be real. And then I will close. I'm going to leave it, I'm going to leave it silent here just for a little bit. Speak as you, as you, as you feel in your heart, and then we'll, we'll, we'll seal this seed over in this soil for His glory. I'm encouraging you to to cry out to the Lord in your heart. Be real. What are things like underneath the soil of everyday life for you? Precious Heavenly Father, as we kneel before you, we, we humble ourselves, O oh Lord. God, we, <clears throat> we lay out our hearts before you. Search us, O oh God. Seek out our hearts. Seek out every piece of us, Lord. And, and Lord, show us those, those areas, God, where, where we can, where maybe we have submitted them to you many, many years ago, and they're fallow now. Lord, it, it looks the part, but upon closer examination, God, it can't really receive or produce fruit. Lord, we submit ourselves to you. God, we ask that you will work within us. That you'll break up the fallow ground of daughter and son, of child, of father, mother, grandfather, grandmother. For each of us, O oh God. Father, we don't want to fake a revival, but we are asking for you to bring a revival among our people. Lord, that you will revive the work in the midst of the years. Lord, in our faithfulness, Lord, 
in many ways we've crusted over. And you are so faithful. When we humble our hearts, you take care of all of those details. God, we pray for our children. Lord, that they may not just grow up to make us proud, but Lord, that they may be what you have created them to be. Lord, that we may speak into their lives as a caring shepherd. Lord, that we may guide them and protect them and lead them and expect of them holiness, righteousness, and service. Father, we seek you for anointing. We seek you for the power of the Word and the Holy Spirit to have its fruit. God, like Abraham, will you pour out upon us in order that we may do for that which you have called us to. Lord, we thank you so much. Father, may I ask that you allow the truth of this message to continue to reverberate and change the generations. Lord, right from, right from here, this day. Lord God, thank you for your goodness. Thank you for your faithfulness. In Jesus' precious name, amen. Amen. <clears throat> Lord bless you and thank you.